You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We're in a time and we're in a moment where there's been enough statistics that have been gathered of organizations who are the most diverse from just an operating and leadership standpoint, that they are the most profitable and most successful. When you couple that with this drive towards more diversity at the board level, I think it's actually going to change the outlook for a number of women and underserved minority groups who hadn't thought about this to think about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has an update on the first geofence warrant case to make it to the Federal Court of Appeals. I've got a rundown of upcoming Supreme Court cases that may affect social media platforms. And later in the show, Larry Whiteside Jr. from RegScale and Cyversity shares ways of increasing diversity and how they can benefit boards, companies, and industries at large. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. All right, Ben, we've got some uh, interesting things to cover here. Why don't you kick things off for us? So I have a couple updates on stories that we've talked about pretty extensively in the past that I just wanted to share. The first is on Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Mm. Uh, that is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Program targets non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be outside of the United States uh, but collects U.S. persons' communications incidentally. Uh, it was due to expire at the end of 2023, and there's been a debate in Congress about how to reauthorize it. You had a couple of competing pieces of legislation. The one from the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which was also sponsored by a couple of libertarian-minded uh, senators, would have required a warrant to access the database of U.S. persons' communications. And the alternative proposal from the House Intelligence Committee really went the opposite direction, uh, did not have a warrant requirement, and would have expanded the reach of the statute to include more forms of data collection. So Congress has decided to do what it does best, which is nothing. <laughs> uh, they are punting this issue. There is a national defense authorization bill currently making its way through both chambers of Congress. Uh-huh. Uh, and there is a rider provision to this bill that will just extend FISA as is until April. Hmm. Uh, so I think we'll revisit this come come springtime. I don't know if they're going to agree on anything then. It's going to be the same Congress with the same uh, differing opinions on Section 702, but 
we'll definitely follow the story. And then just very briefly, we talked about this lawsuit of Epic Games against uh, Google on antitrust grounds, that they were locking uh, Epic Games from being able to sell stuff to users outside of the application, uh, or the Google Play Store, rather. Yeah. Uh, And there was a jury verdict for Epic Games. So a big victory for them, a big blow to Google uh, in terms of antitrust violations. Google has vowed to appeal the case. Uh, So we're still not quite at the end point of this. Um, We'll keep you posted on whether that appeal happens, how that appeal happens, and maybe we'll revisit it. Given the uh, fast pace of our court system in 2043, something like that. (laughs) You know, the the, the 702 thing, we talk about Congress punting it. It it makes me wonder if if them punting it is sort of the same way that Charlie Brown punts with Lucy and the football. Like, (laughs) there is some Lucy and the football to this. Right. (laughs) I have my own selfish interest in this because I did a really fun simulation with my class. I teach a class on this and I did a fun simulation where they played members of Congress debating whether and how to reauthorize this program. Okay. I can only do it again if Congress doesn't agree on an extension. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a point because Congress already (laughs) would have agreed on the policy. I see. I really want to do it again. Uh So uh, if you're listening, Congress, you could really help me out personally. There you go. Even if it's not in the interest (laughs) of the country. All right. What else you got? So uh, my big story today is about a geofence warrant case that has made its way to the Federal Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. So... This uh, case emanates from a robbery that took place in the state of Virginia. It's United States v. Chatry. Basically, there was a robbery at a bank, and there were no leads. Uh, Law enforcement in Virginia sought to obtain a geofence warrant to figure out all of the cell phones that were in a given area at a particular time around that bank. Yeah. Uh, Google complied according to their own internal rules. Their rules require a warrant for them to hand over geofence data. It is kind of a warrant, but it's also not really a warrant because we think of warrants having some level of particularity. This is the person to be searched. This is the place to be searched or things to be seized. Yeah. Uh, But here it's a warrant for a bunch of different devices, however many devices were within that geofenced area. Hmm. Uh, So that, that will become important in the adjudication of this case. So, using that lead, they ended up uh, arresting Mr. Chatry. His phone was in the area, and they did some good police work. He was charged. He was convicted. He appeals on Fourth Amendment grounds. So, we have this really novel question that's made its way to the Court of Appeals that has never been answered before, which is, uh, what kind of warrant is required uh, for this type of geofence data? Is it acceptable that there is not a warrant issued vis-a-vis the individual here? So Mr. Chattery himself, there was no individualized suspicion. Hmm. Uh, And where do we stand on geofence warrants? There's no real prevailing law on this in any of the circuits. Uh, So this is really a new and uh, novel issue. So let me be Mr. Analogy here and and ask, uh, I'm thinking of of an example where, uh, let's say, the police we're pretty sure that somebody in my neighborhood was keeping a cache of stolen goods. uh, And they went to the judge and said, we want to search every house in the neighborhood. And the judge said, go for it. That would, that would run into fourth amendment issues. Yeah. Right. I think that does run a similar particularity requirement. I think there are questions as to how similar that really is. Yeah. I think the better analogy might be like obtaining security camera footage 
and recognizing everybody that was in an area at a particular time. Okay. The thing is, we just really don't know what it represents. I don't think there is a perfect analogy because it's such a novel issue. So it went to this three-judge panel uh, in the Fourth Circuit, and based on the oral arguments, uh, and this is uh, a nice rundown by one-time friend of the show, Professor Oren Kerr, on the Volk Conspiracy blog. <laughs> uh, but according to him, there were kind of three different p- positions represented by these three judges. So one of the judges, an Obama appointee, basically said that this is like pervasive government surveillance. He even said this reminded him of Nazi Germany, uh, which I thought, you know, somewhat of an exaggeration, but just how this really runs afoul of Fourth Amendment rights. He is very skeptical of the argument of law enforcement in this case, that users opt into Google location data. So I'll get to that uh, in a second. I think that's a really important element of this case. Uh, One of the judges, a Ronald Reagan appointee, who's been stuck on this court for 40 years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's going back a while. Uh, He was concerned that this is a, that to restrict geofence warrants would unnecessarily burden law enforcement. It was kind of a practical concern. Uh, And in his view, the good faith exception should uh, allow this conviction to stand. And basically what that means is, no matter what the court decides now, at the time this surveillance took place, a good faith understanding was held among law enforcement officials that they could obtain this data without any individualized uh, suspicion. And then the third judge in this case, who I believe is a Trump appointee, uh, Richardson, is kind of the uh, undecided vote, but seems to be leaning toward taking the government side here because he believes that people relinquish their reasonable expectation of privacy when they opt into Google location data sharing. So really the key element of the case here is that Google doesn't automatically collect our data, all of us have to opt into it. The first time we opened Google Maps, we had to affirmatively press that button that we were opting into location data tracking. And in the long record of this case, it appears that only a third of uh, cell phone users end up opting into that service. So the idea here uh, that I think is expressed by this judge, and this happens to be the view of Professor Kerr, is that this isn't a search at all uh, because you relinquish that reasonable expectation of privacy by opting in to Google location data. You have a very easy option uh, if you want to avoid this type of surveillance, and that would be to just not opt in to location sharing. So any good defense attorney would say, hey, what about Carpenter? Uh, the Carpenter <laughs> case was about cell site location information. Well, that's, that's where I was going to go. Is it, What if it weren't Google specific? What if it was just tower location stuff? So that is the real distinguishing factor in that case. So with cell site location information, you're not really opting in. Just by the by nature of having a cell phone, you are going to be pinging off towers. Right. Your only realistic option in that scenario is not to carry a cell phone. And good luck going around in modern society without a cell phone for a period of days. I think you're going to feel very shut out. It's an option for some people, but, you know, in terms of how most of our personal lives go and our work lives go, that's not really a practical option. And that was a huge part of the Carpenter decision is that it wasn't really a voluntary action on the part of the user. The only voluntary action that user took was to turn on the device. I think the distinguishing factor here is that you are affirmatively opting into Google location data tracking. 
Where I think it gets complicated, and I think one of the judges on this panel agrees with me, is do you really have meaningful choice in terms of opting in? Now, I guess you do because only a third of users opt in. Yeah. But I think some of the Google applications maybe are not per se necessary to survive in modern society, but are just pretty darn important. Maps being first and foremost. Um, there are only a couple of Maps applications. Obviously, you need to use location services to make use of GPS. I happen to like Google Maps, uh, so I've opted in on it. So I'm just not sure if, by definition, people are really relinquishing that reasonable expectation of privacy, just because I'm not sure there really is that type of meaningful choice. To sum things up here, we have a lot of uncertainty with this three-judge panel. Uh, I think they're kind of going in three different directions, but we're going to have to watch this very closely because this is going to be the prevailing rule on uh, geofence warrants. And uh, I'll note that as of right now, since there really is no judicial guidance, Google itself is making the rules. I mean, basically, all geofence warrants happen because Google is following its own policies, which are requiring governments to obtain a warrant uh, to, to get this data. Uh, but besides those internal policies, there really is no guidance on it. So we are going to be relying on the Fourth Circuit, hopefully, to give us some guidance into this. I wonder, too, about, you know, like, um, I guess it's been a couple of years now, but, you know, Apple famously made an update to iOS where you they gave the user a lot more control over what information they were sharing. Right. And an, an app like Google Maps will pop up every now and then and and uh, iOS will say, hey, you know, we've noticed that you're sharing your location all the time. Are, Are you, you sure, sure you want to do, you that? do that? Or yeah. do you want to, you know, and it, you can either do it, not do it at all, do it all the time, or only do it when the app is active. And I think that's a reasonable thing to be able to dial in. It's interesting that in this case, it, you know, the case I'm describing, the ability to do that is coming from the, the uh, operating system provider, not the app provider. Right. And I think maybe that is good evidence that people actually do have meaningful choices. Mm -hmm. There might be a way to enjoy the fruits of these applications while not constantly sharing your location data. Right. Um, I think that might disadvantage people who are not technologically savvy, uh, which is certainly one concern. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really do think this is a close call. And I kind of struggle with how, if I were a judge, I would come down on this issue. Yeah, that's interesting. What happens next here? So it's a three-judge panel. We'll get a decision from these three judges. I think it's possible that we have a two-judge majority that finds in favor of the government, but for different reasons. One of the judge will buy into this theory from Professor Kerr that this isn't a search at all because hmm. you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this data. And perhaps another judge will just find that the good faith exception applies. Then after this, uh, we'll kind of look and see what happens in other circuits. Whatever ruling we get here is going to be kind of the only legal guidance we have in our federal judicial system. So this will, at the very least, be a persuasive precedent in every district across the country. Uh, but we'll see if another case pops up in another district. And if there are conflicting cases on this, then I think this would definitely be a Fourth Amendment case that could finally make its way to the Supreme Court. We're on quite a drought of Fourth Amendment cases at the Supreme Court. So, <laughs> Poor Professor Kerr. <laughs> I know, I know. He's had to resort to just following appeals court cases. That's which right. Oh, he's slumming. Small beans, small beans for him. That's yeah. right, that's right. Uh, but this decision in and of itself, just because it's the first decision 
from a federal appeals court, mm-hmm. I think it's going to have a lot of persuasive power. So I'm sure we'll cover it when the decision comes out. Yeah. Uh, I will note here that uh, is sort of a, another bit of follow-up that's, um, I guess, slightly related to this, uh, is that um, we had this story recently about, I believe it was because of some revelations that um, Senator Wyden had revealed in a letter that we found out that Apple and Google were sharing metadata. Law enforcement could subpoena right. Apple and Google. I read this morning that uh, Apple has changed their policy that they are now requiring a warrant for that. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like, there's sometimes you feel like there's not much you can do as one individual senator. You're in a body with very archaic rules. You're one of 100. Mm -hmm. But like, if you find your specialty issues and you make enough of a fuss about it and you get the public on your side, you can force private companies to change their behavior. So I just, I admire Senator Wyden for uh, what he does and and going through with that. To what degree do you think Apple's change here was enabled by this being made public at all? I think it has to be an enormous factor. Yeah. Uh, I think they pride themselves, Apple in particular, on being, uh, we have the privacy-focused operating system. We value your digital privacy we fought against the FBI when the stakes were the highest in the San Bernardino case. And so I think the fact that this has gone public kind of forced Apple to stand by that reputation and take this action. So I think it had a huge impact. And Wyden knows that. That's why he's, you know, he's not sending these letters. Uh, maybe he starts by sending them privately, but they always become public. And I, I think they do for a reason. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, we will have a link to your story in the show notes here. My story comes from the folks over at The Conversation, a website. They claim academic rigor, journalistic flair. This is written by Lynn Greensky, who's Professor Emeritus of Communication and Rhetoric at Syracuse University. Go orange. (laughs) Uh, It's really kind of a rundown of what the Supreme Court has uh, on its docket when it comes to uh, First Amendment protections and social media posts. Uh, And there are really two categories here. I guess I should start by saying that, you know, as you and I have discussed here many times, we've got this notion of the public square. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the public square is, I guess, historically set as being a place where free speech reigns. And as we moved on to social media platforms, and I think many people make the argument that social media has become the new public square, to what degree do those First Amendment rights apply? And of course, also, as you and I have talked about many times, the First Amendment does not protect social media messages. And and the platform owners, it is established, it is within their right to moderate content. For now. They're they're private companies, right? For now. They're they're private companies. So the Supreme Court has five cases in front of them that could affect all of this. Two of the cases involve elected officials who have blocked constituents on social media So the cases that the Supreme Court is hearing basically is about whether or not a public official is allowed to block a constituent or not. What do you make of that, Ben? 
It's really interesting. I mean, I think if you analogize it to the public forums that we were used to in the pre-digital age, you would have to determine that those spaces should be remain free for robust conversation and debate, only subject to content-neutral restrictions. So you can't go out with a megaphone at two in the morning. Right. <laughs> uh, I think what it's going to come down to is the particulars of those cases. Uh, is there some type of content-neutral reason why individual users have been blocked? Whether it's because of harassment, you know, somebody's posting lewd images, or if there's kind of more of a generalized right to petition the government uh, in the most modern way possible through social media services uh, in a way that's analogous to the public square. So... I think the courts would look very disfavorably upon any type of content-based restriction, basically saying, well, you can contact your representatives, but um, you can't say X, Y, and Z. Uh, that would give them the, the power to block you without facing any legal trouble. I think it's going to be about how to develop content-neutral restrictions, and it's not an easy question to uh, resolve. We've seen it first come up in the context of former President Trump, who would block some people uh, on Twitter, which was his main form of communication when he was president. And we do have a First Amendment right. It's explicit to petition your government for redress of grievances. So if the White House blocked all incoming mail from particular users or particular People of a particular political persuasion, that seems to me that that would run a front of that constitutional provision. And I mean, at least on instinct, I kind of think that should apply in the digital sphere as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of this blocking is for the um, the, the elected officials' convenience that, that, that it can be annoying, right? Every I'm time sure it's very annoying. Yeah. yeah. But, but I was thinking, you know, suppose uh, I'm somebody who is taking issue with something one of my elected officials is doing, and I decide that, you know, every day I'm going to stand out front of City Hall and, uh, you know, with my sign <laughs> and, and address them on their way to work, you know, and it may be a temporary annoyance to them to have to walk past me, but... It's clearly constitutionally protected. Right. Yeah. Right. And that happens all the time. People do that all the time. People go into House and Senate office buildings and purposely get themselves arrested to make a point and to get the attention of their members of Congress. So I'm just not sure how and when we could restrict that uh, in the digital space. There are differences, even though you know most public squares you think of as publicly owned. Now, there are complicated cases about things like shopping malls, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, <laughs> But at least for now, these social media sites are, are considered private companies, so they could set their own rules. Um, but I do think there are major First Amendment issues at play here in terms of the most effective modern method to petition your government for redress of grievances. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that came up here in, in my hometown, uh, Columbia, Maryland, uh, which is a planned community. And in some of the redevelopment work, uh, there was concern from folks that some of the places that we consider to be public places, the lakefronts, the places where people gather, are actually privately owned. Yeah. And so... Columbia is unique in that respect. Right. And so where does that leave us if, you know, for things like uh, protesting, if, if, if they're privately owned and ultimately the property owner, as you were alluding to, you know, malls, if they can kick you out or kick you off of that land... Uh, where does that leave you? So it's an interesting conversation. Uh, so the other cases in front of the Supreme Court, 
uh, are challenging uh, the laws from both Florida and Texas that regulate social media moderation. The folks who brought these, these cases argue that these infringe on the platform's First Amendment rights to editorial discretion. That's the kind of thing you and I have talked about uh, for a long time. I think one of the sources of this that this article points out is that the Biden administration has, how, how would you say it, used their influence uh, with social media platforms to try to control misleading or harmful content, uh, most famously COVID-19 misinformation. But um, there are people who say that the government should not be allowed to do that, should not be able, that, that even that influence of clear misinformation is too much. Yeah, I mean, that's a case that's emerging uh, called Missouri v. Biden. So the plaintiff in that case is the state of Missouri. They're joined by other states and other private parties. There was a district, federal district court holding that said that the Biden administration most likely did unconstitutionally coerce these companies into suppressing certain categories of speech. Now, the rebuttal to this is that these are private companies. They can do whatever they want. Uh, and there are also free speech rights, not only on behalf of the companies, but on behalf of these administration officials. I mean, don't they have rights to try to publicly persuade these companies to adopt certain content moderation policies that they think would be in the best interest of the country? What the judge found in that federal district court case was that there was coercion, and because there was government coercion, this was effectively state action, which is what you need for a proper First Amendment challenge. I happen to disagree with that. I think uh, there's really no evidence that there was forced coercion. There was no like explicit quid pro quo here, like, we're going to shut down, we're going to Cut right. access to your website if <laughs> right. you don't comply with our demands. Right. Nice social media platform you got here. It'd be a shame if shame anything if were to happen to it. it. Yeah. <laughs> what the plaintiff said is, well, there's an implied threat because Congress has said they might want to regulate social media. But that's meaningless to me because regulate social media could mean a number of different things. And there's no evidence at the uh, current moment that Congress is anywhere close to regulating social media companies, nor that the decisions of these social media companies in which information they want to regulate would actually play into Congress's decision. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking we have a very conservative Supreme Court, uh, and there have been some indications, specifically I'm looking at Justices Alito and Thomas, that they might be persuaded by this district court opinion, hold for the state of Missouri. Uh, for right now, the district court opinion has been enjoined for the time being, meaning um, at least as, as to most of the communications in question, the Biden administration can hold those conversations while this case is being adjudicated. But I think it would prevent uh, the government in the future from even implicitly encouraging these companies to crack down on misinformation, uh, which I think is, you can argue whether it's valuable or worthwhile for the government to make that argument, but I think they should have the right to make that argument no matter what their uh, ideology is. What about the cases uh, challenging Florida and Texas's laws? I mean, those, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that those laws are basically um, restricting these companies, these private companies' ability to exert their own editorial discretion. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, as the plaintiffs have shown there, brings up major First Amendment implications whether these companies uh, have the First Amendment right to make editorial choices about what appears on their platforms. 
you know, it it does bear on their own reputations as business, which information is shown either through some type of manual work or via algorithm. And this conglomerate of social media sites who've joined this group called NetChoice, I think, have a compelling argument that trying to restrict that or trying to put in place state-based content moderation policies is an inhibition on their free speech rights as private actors. Uh, so that's how I am persuaded on that issue. Um, how do you so, think the, the Supremes will do? Uh, this one is is such a crapshoot to me. Really? Uh, we know that Justice Thomas in the past has been amenable to something like this. He's talked about social media companies uh, in various uh, opinions over the years being kind of like common carriers where they're non-government entities, but they're like uh, cable companies and railroads where everybody has to ride them. They kind of have a monopoly or a duopoly on the industry. So they almost count as government actors, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so far, none of the other justices have signed on to those opinions. So I guess it depends, from my perspective, on how many justices uh, Mr. Thomas is able to convince of, of his view on this. And I'm just not sure. I'd love to know what goes on behind those robes in the cloakroom. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to game it out and think about, you know, what, what would happen if things went one way or the other to to strip these companies from their rights to make editorial decisions. I mean, I think if you look at it in the context of uh, what's happened with uh, ex-Twitter and their um, ability to remove editorial discretion, right? And and what that's done to the platform. How people are fleeing the platform, their advertisers their are fleeing. Advertise, right. So their their uh, you know, their business is is in the tank. And if a platform had no ability to uh, cut back on those things that are causing the downfall of Twitter, from a, certainly from a business point of view. I mean, I'm sure there are folks out there who feel like Twitter is better than it, or I keep saying Twitter, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. I think we should just <laughs> X, all keep calling it Twitter. Yes. One of yeah. our listeners said, just call it X Twitter because that there's clarity there. Yeah, I think um, that's perfect. And I, and I like it. Um, but I think uh, there are people out there who probably think that X Twitter is better than it's ever been because it lasts. It's, it's unleashed and you can, you know, truly communicate and say what, whatever you want. Whether that's viable as a business is a whole nother question, I suppose. And we're seeing the, the yeah. two sides of that play out. I mean, it just seems crazy to me that companies could look, would be forced to, to keep certain content on their sites, even if it would hurt their reputation, which might hurt their bottom line. I mean, we've just never interfered in the private market uh, in, in that kind of regard, uh, especially because even though you might claim these are common carriers, with common carriers, usually one of the defining features is the lack of competition. Mm -hmm. And here, like there are a lot of social media sites. So one way you might want to gain a competitive advantage is by moderating the most objectionable content. And so to prevent social companies from being able to get that competitive advantage, to me, seems like it would be bad. But uh, I am not yet on the Supreme Court, so we'll have to see if, if they agree with me on this. Does it make any difference that these platforms are free to the user as opposed to, like I think of most of the common carriers, you have to pay to use them. You, I don't get the, the phone service for free. I don't get, you know, cable company for free. But things like Facebook, there are, these are ad-supported. Does that matter? 
I'm not sure that matters in a legal sense or a constitutional sense. I mean, maybe you could argue that this makes it more like a public square than like a private golf club. But there are still barriers to entry. I mean, you have to pay to have a device. So uh, I'm not sure if that's going to play a major factor in these cases. I haven't heard it in any of the arguments um, that the fact this is a free service has any impact here. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Larry Whiteside Jr. He is from RegScale and also Cyversity. And uh, our conversation centers on diversity in ways that uh, industries can benefit from that and also some of the challenges with attracting and retaining cybersecurity talent. Here's my conversation with Larry Whiteside Jr. So today we're uh, talking about uh, diversity on organizations' boards and, and kind of using this, this SEC rule, uh, 5605F. Um, can we start off there? Can you give us a, a little bit of the background on that rule and what exactly it lays out for organizations? Yeah, so um, that, that rule is, has been one of a lot of discussion over the years. And a lot of people were questioning whether it was going to actually come to fruition and then how it's going to be executed upon. So the rule really states that every public uh, board has a responsibility to have two members of their board of directors uh, that come from diverse backgrounds, um, and one of them should be a woman, right? And, and it's super important because there's a couple of things associated with it, right? So one, there's absolutely a socioeconomic component to what that looks like. If you think about how boards have been made up for years of public companies, there's been jokes for years about when I go in front of the board of directors, it's a group of older white men. Mm. Now, jokes aside, the reality of that means that when I go into a room of full of people who do not look like me, do not understand me, or potentially have a background similar to mine, that creates a level of potential miscommunication and or misunderstanding, right? So that's one piece to this. The other piece to this is having a room that has people that come from diverse backgrounds and look at the world through what I like to call a different lens leads to enabling an organization to make better 
and more informed decisions, right? So because at the end of the day, the board's role and responsibility uh, from a fiduciary standpoint and just from a legal standpoint is to make the best decision for the organization and, and for its shareholders, right? Being a public entity. It's almost hard to do that if everyone in the room looks the same, comes from similar backgrounds, comes from similar educational institutional, comes from the same place because it's an easy opportunity for groupthink to sort of take over the room. So with that and this ask and, and a mandate now from the SEC to say, hey, let's start by having two people from you know a diverse background and one of them being a woman to come into the room leads to boards who now have at least someone right in the room that is thinking differently, potentially seeing a problem that's being presented through a different lens based on their own unique experiences. The challenge I see continuing to go forward with this is one or two diverse people in a room of potentially 10 or more doesn't necessarily mean they are going to get the room to change the direction that they would have gone without them in the room, if that makes sense. Yeah. How are organizations responding to this? What are the the methods by which they are putting themselves into compliance? Yeah. So, so honestly, there's a couple of things and it's, it's starting with, uh, there are organizations outside of the big companies that are looking for this, that are starting to create, I'll say training offerings and looking to find diverse people who have the background and qualifications to be able to sit in those types of seats and offering training mechanisms to help prepare them for what being a board member looks like, right? Because being a board member is a very nuanced type role that is not the same as being, you know, just an executive. So that's one thing that's happening outside of these big companies. Inside these big companies, what I'm hearing from my peers, and that's executives across the ecosystem, is that there's a lot more dialogue and there's actually now starting to be headhunters that these organizations are reaching out to and utilizing to go out and find diverse candidates that are potentially ready for board seats, right? And that's, that's huge, right? The fact that they are starting to put some resources to help them go out and find the candidates that they feel feel will um, sort of meet the need that the SEC is mandating them to move towards. Now, that's a really interesting point. You know, I, I think we often hear about folks, and, and I think um, particularly with women in the workplace, of kind of self-selecting themselves out of jobs. You know, there's that sort of that that um, that stereotype that you know a, a man will apply for a job that he has you know only bare, that he only barely qualifies for, but a woman will disqualify herself if she doesn't meet every single possible requirement. So is is the opportunity here to help get the word out that uh, folks should be putting themselves up for these positions that you know if they feel as though they're within the realm of qualification that this is a real chance to step up and contribute. It is. This is one of those points in history, right? And we've come across many different opportunities where these types of things have happened, where the industry is ripe for some change, right? And the mandate is a component of it. 
organizations recognizing the need for it is a second component of it. And then throwing the resources at it from both sides is another component of it, right? So there are a lot of people, and I'll speak directly about myself. As a man of color coming up in the tech industry over the last 30 plus years, a public board seat was not ever something that I envisioned. It's not even something that was part of the purview of what I thought was possible or thought was part of my potential you know, roadmap of career. And it wasn't until the SEC began discussing and talking about the need for this. And I've been in front of some of the largest you know, public boards in the world to speak, right? Either as, an, as a cyber expert or an organization that I work for. And it wasn't until that this conversation began happening in the community that I was like, well, wait, this actually may be something that I could do, right? With the experience that I bring to the table with my unique lens and, and so forth. And so, um, and having served and continuing to serve on a number of not-for-profit boards and the like. So uh, I think that just we're in a time and we're in a moment where there's been enough statistics that have been gathered of organizations who are the most diverse from just an operating and leadership standpoint, that they are the most profitable and most successful. When you couple that with this drive towards more diversity at the board level, when you add those statistics to it, and look at the opportunity, I think it's actually going to change the outlook for a a number of women and underserved minority groups uh, who hadn't thought about this to think about it. B, for organizations who recognize the importance of diversity and having people who think differently and look at a different lens to help them change at the top. Because we do recognize, and we have for a long time, that everything in an organization has to start at the top. And we've often thought of the CEO as the top, right, where, where we've talked about, hey, the CEO needs to change their executive leadership team to ensure that they have a person of color or a woman or someone coming from an underrepresented community. Well, now we're starting to realize, actually, the top is the board of directors, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this new opportunity to say how we drive from the top. And I think this SEC ruling has given us that opportunity. You know, I, I think you and I have both seen that your study after study shows that when you have diversity of thought among your team, diversity of experience, that that leads to better outcomes. But at the same time, I it is not hard for me to imagine, and I'm sure for you as well, there are a lot of people out there who are going to roll their eyes at this that say, this is another mandate coming down from on high. You know, who are these people to tell me how I need to populate my board? You know, oh, now I, you know, they'll, in air quotes, they'll say, now I have to have a diversity hire on my board. How do we contend with that mindset? Yeah. So you actually bring up a very valid point that organizations have dealt with and, and underserved people, people coming from underserved communities and women have dealt with for decades, right? And, and for me, I don't think you can change certain people's minds. You're not going to combat the naysayers. A naysayer is going to be a naysayer regardless of what factual information you put in front of them, right? I think the opportunity here is to ensure that we start educating ourselves, right? And funny, I I literally just had this conversation last night. So, uh, and I'll give some context to it. So I have a friend who's working with um, a C-level executive at a very large company who's looking to hire a CISO. And they... They said that we would prefer that the CISO be a female. So I had someone that was part of the conversation who was a female who 
who basically got up and said, you know, I mandating a female, please don't forget that, you know, they need to be qualified and they need to have the experience and they need to be someone who can actually do the job because hiring someone just because they're a female is not okay. And it was a female stating this. And, you know, she then this morning, she and I had breakfast and she actually apologized to me if she came off in a way uh, that, that I felt was wrong. And I said, no, I actually agree with you. Um, one of the things that happens when these types of mandates come down is people feel that then, okay, now I just have to go do it for the sake of doing it. And what they miss is you would be doing both the person that you bring in as well as the organization a disservice if you were not bringing people in that were qualified to do so. So what does that mm. mean? That means just because the SEC is asking that you bring in these candidates, right, that have diversity of thought, that come from underserved communities, and that is a female, they are not saying just grab anybody off the streets, which is why it's important for those of us that come from underserved communities and re represent the diversity that the SEC is looking for, that we go out and get ourselves educated on the things that are, would be required of a role to be able to meet this mandate. Those two things have to go together. And to the point that the naysayers, again, are still going to be naysayers. But if you bring in someone who fits the model but has the qualifications, it's really hard to be a naysayer against that, if that makes sense. Yeah. What's your advice to that person who wants to be an ally in this process? You know, I'm someone who's sitting on a board and I want to see this through and I want to uh, help this process be most effective for my organization, but also for the people who are going to be joining my board? I'm glad that you actually asked that question because I think that allyship in this is probably the biggest component. And for me, allyship looks like this. And, and I say this because I'm hoping that people will hear this and take this to heart themselves. Allyship is not just going out and finding the perfect candidate, right? And all right, it's going to be an exhaustive search to go and try and find someone who exactly models this thing because it's a combination of the demographics and all of the background of education, right? It's allyship is identifying someone who has the aptitude to potentially do that and then helping them achieve the required education that they need to actually achieve it, right? Because this mandate is not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long road to get there. And so if we spend time, if allies spend time going out and trying to find that unicorn that fits everything, it's never going to actually come to fruition. So if they can find people that have the aptitude right, to potentially be that and can steer them along the way of, hey, do these things to help you get the education and experience that you're going to need to serve in that type of role. And then when you're ready as an ally, it may not be the board I'm on, but maybe it's another board of someone else that I know. It's that type of allyship that is actually going to make a difference.
Ben, what do you think? It's an important topic. Yeah, it is. Sometimes it's a little sad to me because like people try and be persuasive on diversity just by saying, well, this will improve your profit margin. This will make your company uh, more functional. Uh, it'll add to your viability in the marketplace. And I think all of that is true and it was persuasive in the interview. I also just think like, to my mind, there's a moral question of the value of diversity. Uh, so even beyond the practical issues, that's just my personal opinion, but it was a really interesting interview. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our thanks to Larry Whiteside Jr. for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>